Well, as I've been um, as I've been praying through what God uh, wants me to say today, um, I've been looking at this passage in Mark chapter three. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter three. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Jen can uh, get you a blue Bible. Mark chapter three is where we're at today. Um, and uh, I, uh, as I've been praying through this, I, I've got to be honest. Um, I don't know. I, some of the things that I feel like God has been speaking to, speaking to me on and showing me in the scriptures, and as I just simply read the gospels, um, is that there are a lot of um, false disciples of Jesus Christ. A lot of people that think they're disciples, um, but they're not. And I've been praying that God would give me the courage to call out true discipleship this morning. Um, Just to begin, I want you to, in your mind, answer this question. Um, How many disciples have you made in the last year? All right. How many disciples have you made in the last five years? How many disciples have you made in the last ten years? How many disciples have you made in your life? I mean, people who actually, who literally did not know about Christ, and because of your ministry in their life, they begin to follow Christ. To be a disciple is to do what Jesus did. And what we're going to see today is that at the core of what Jesus did is he called men to repent and believe the gospel and to become his disciples. He made disciples. And so I want to I begin with this challenge, with this thought. Are we truly living as disciples of of uh, Jesus Christ. If you've been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, um, which is one of the, or it is the earliest gospel, most scholars believe, the first gospel actually written. And so we are just diving in this, this uh, late winter and into the spring into the Gospel of Mark. We're in our fifth week today. Um, and we've seen Jesus bust into the scene with all power and authority wrapped up in, in who, he, who he is, uh, the power and authority to heal, the power and authority to uh, kick demons out of people. Um, and at the core of what Jesus was doing, he has the power and authority to forgive sins. And this is what last week we talked about. It's what made the religious people upset. So you can do all these things. You can heal. You can do all these great, really cool things. But whoa, you claim to forgive sins. Like that's beyond what we can take. And so at the core of what we see Jesus doing is forgiving sins, freely giving not only physical healing and and, uh, physical life to people, but also spiritual healing, the healing that we really need at the core of who we are. And because of this, the crowds, I mean, we've seen this, right? The crowds are crazy about him. It's like Beatles phenomenon crazy. You know, it's crazy like... Michael Jackson in 1983 crazy, you know? Um, 
the crowd in verse nine of chapter three, actually, the crowds are so um, they're they're pressing around him so much. Uh, it, it says that Jesus told his closest followers to get a boat ready, so the crowds wouldn't crush him. All right, this is crazy fanaticism. Um, lots of lots of fans. When I was a kid, how many of you dreamed of like having tons of fans? Be honest. Raise your hand if you, as a kid, at one point, dreamed of having a lot of fans because of something. All right? Yeah. Like, come on. Um, I, I would. My sister and I would actually pretend that we were these. Um, <laughs> Uh, singers, like really famous, famous singers. Um, you got the look, Joel. Yeah. And uh, we would, um, so we would like pretend that like our hallway, the walls were like crowds of people trying to touch us. <laughs> We'd be like, <sighs> you know, like busting through, trying to get through the cameras. It was crazy, you know? Um, so for me, when I was a kid, it was either going to, I was going to be a, a, a singer, um, uh, musician, which you can see was a ridiculous <laughs> dream. Um, or I was going to be, what are you laughing for? <laughs> or I was going to be um, a, uh, um, an NBA uh, basketball player, which you'll see later if you play basketball. That's, that was ridiculous too. But, but we, all, we all dream of, of having fans, don't we? This crazy, like, fanatical crowd of people that, that want to get around us and, and sort of touch us. And so Jesus has this. Jesus has, at this point in the story, a lot of fans. He's like a celebrity. And to, to the point where they're about to crush him. They love him that much. or They're, they're, they're fans of his to such a degree that they they're, are, are about to crush him. Fanatical. Um, let's remember, though, at the same time that this same fanatical crowd on Palm Sunday turned to the mob of angry uh, killers on Good Friday. Because fans, fans love their stars only so far. Fans choose their stars, who they like, and if their stars don't perform to the level or the expectation that they were hoping for, what do fans do? Opt out. I'm out. Boo. Let me make this clear for you. How many LeBron James fans? All right. Somebody like, who is LeBron James? Um, LeBron stinking James. I, I, if there was anybody who was a LeBron fan, was is the key word in this. If there was anybody who was a LeBron fan, it was yours truly. Um, grew up in the same town. I saw him play as a kid. I saw him play in high school. Then he plays. He gets drafted by my, my childhood team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, all right? And we had some amazing LeBron fans, as you can see that dude. Like, that would have been me. <laughs> if I had courtside seats, that would have been me. Or, uh, maybe more so, all right? My eyes might have been falling. I don't know. I was like a crazy... But then... As uh, you sports fans know, LeBron left Cleveland, all right? <laughs> this is what fans do. When, when, when the stars uh, don't perform 
to our expectation. They don't do what we want them to do. We're no longer pressing in on them anymore. We're no longer trying to touch them. All of a sudden, we are, we're, we're, we're burning their jersey. Uh, now, LeBron is in Miami. Um, he's got some crazy Miami Heat fans. All right. Look at this guy right here. That dude is crazy. All right. <laughs> wow. Um, but you know what's going to happen is when, when LeBron goes back to Cleveland, can I get an amen? When he goes back to Cleveland, um, the Miami fans are too going to uh, turn on LeBron, although they will say LeBron turned on them, right? My point is this. Uh, fanaticism only goes so far. We can be fans of someone and then they don't perform like we want them to perform or do what we want them to do, and all of a sudden we're crucifying them. So are you a fan of Jesus? Are you a fan of him? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Are you? Are you a big fan of Jesus? Uh, what, what we see um, in Mark chapter 3 here is Jesus is actually trying to get away from the fans. He's trying to remove himself from this fanatical crowd of people. And so I hope you're not a fan of Jesus. I hope you're more than that. I hope Jesus is not just simply your star, but I hope he's your savior. And I hope you truly understand what that means. Because for many, many Christians, um, uh, they, they are uh, simply fans. Maybe even in this room, fans often fill up churches on Sunday morning. Fans pick and choose what they like about Jesus. They love the ticket to heaven part, but they hate the take up the cross, your cross part. Fans may love the uh, help the poor stand up for the oppressed part, but fans hate the I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me part. Fans pick and choose what they like about life in Jesus' body, life in the church. They love uh, community, but they may hate the idea of submission to the authority of scriptures or the authority of the local church. They love uh, grace, the concept of grace, and they may hate the idea of discipline. See, fans pick and choose their stars, and they pick and choose what they like about their stars. I like the way he plays, but I don't really care for his personal life. A fan's allowed to do that. But discipleship, on the other hand, is so different from being a fan. It's so very different from fanaticism. Look at um, verse 13. We're going to dive into this. And actually, before we do this, let me pray. And I just want to ask uh, God to help me this morning. God, I um, do ask that as, uh, as I talk and as I uh, share this message that you have put on my heart and convicted me of, that, um, uh, that your word will be made uh, known, that your spirit will move in our hearts, and this will become a living word as we read the scriptures uh, open them up to us. Help us to understand who you are in a deeper way and help us to understand who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple, not a fan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. So he's, he's getting away. You can read the previous verses later today, but he's getting away from the fans. And he went up on the mountain and called, it says, he called to him those whom he desired. And they came. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Now, the first lie of fanaticism, of Christian fanaticism, is that you choose or chose Christ. See, fanaticism says that you can choose who you want. You can choose Muhammad, you can choose Buddha, you can choose agnosticism, you can choose atheism, skepticism, you can choose what you want. And if you would like to, you can choose Christ. That's the first lie of fanaticism. Is that you, in your own power, because of your intellect, because you're so smart, because you read the Bible in such a great way, that you actually came to the place where you pursued and, and you grabbed on and, and said, I'm, I'm getting on to this thing. In fact, it's the opposite. This language is very strong here. Um, I was reading a uh, Greek theologian, or a, a, a theologian who's an expert in the Greek, and he said that this language, he called to him those whom he desired, is very strong, and it's very Christ-centered, meaning uh, it was Christ, Christ's will that these guys become disciples, not necessarily their will. There is no indication that these disciples had any uh, initial um, feeling or idea that they wanted to follow Jesus before Christ called them. So Christ comes in, and, he, and out of all of these fans, he takes these 12 guys, and he calls them, whoever he wills, apart from their will and draws them to him. And then the next word is, and he appointed 12. And this word appointed uh, is, all, is also a word for called out. He, he didn't, Christ didn't come and look at this, this huge stock of qualified disciples. This, this big group of people and a lot of, you know, and, and he didn't go through and say, okay, which ones have the most ability to do what I do? Which ones have the most ability to follow me? Which ones are the powerful ones? Who are the ones that, that have uh, the greatest potential to, to be able to uh, make a difference in the world? Instead, he goes and he appoints or calls out discipleship from nothing. And so there was nothing there, and Christ then made something in them. They were not disciples. They were not following him. And Christ turned them into disciples. He did a work in them and drew them to him and called them, made them, appointed them as his disciples. How many, how many disciples were there uh, before Jesus called these twelve? Zero. Zero. There were a lot of fans. There were a lot of fans. And there were zero disciples. So what we see here is Mark's uh, um, 
recollection, his, his telling us of this moment when Christ went from zero disciples, true disciples, to 12. And this is how it happened. He found them, the, called those who he willed, and made them into his disciples. Fans choose their own star. Disciples, on the other hand, are made out of absolutely nothing. Some of you can look at your life like I can and completely testify to that truth. There was, there was nothing, there was nothing there. There was nothing there. And Christ came and moved in my life and called me to be his disciple and turned me into something that wasn't. I think of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if you know that, that verse where he says that, that, that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We are dead. Before conversion, before Christ calls us and we come to an understanding of who Jesus is and the Spirit does a work in us, before that, we're dead. Now, what good is a dead person? What can a dead person do? Can a dead person clean themselves? Can a dead person bury themselves? A dead person can, can do nothing, right? So what could it mean that Paul says before Christ we were dead? It can only mean that we were dead. There's like nothing that the disciples could have done in their own power to find and choose Christ. But Christ did a work in them. It was a miracle that Christ did a work in them and chose these guys to be his disciples. Um, I, I, I had the most random conversation with a man just down the street. I was, I was down on uh, uh, the 2100 block of McCullough Street and was um, met, met a guy who's he's an older gentleman. He's actually a deacon in, a, in another church in West Baltimore. And we, we got to chatting about Jesus and about grace and the gospel. And um, you know how sometimes you just randomly come across people and as you're talking with them, you're like, man, this person knows Jesus. This person really, I mean, like, I mean, knows like I know my wife, like he knows Jesus, like he walks with Jesus. This is the sense I was getting. And as he's talking about his love for Jesus and the grace of Jesus, his eyes just like well up with tears. And, 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 and then he says, uh, he, he was like, you know, one time I, I didn't understand what this, what was so amazing about grace. The song Amazing Grace. I didn't understand why, why grace was so amazing. And he said, then Jesus called me and Jesus saved me. And he said, I, I look around and there's like all of these people, he says, who are more qualified than me to follow him. He was like, I, I used to be hustling the streets. There was nothing within me that was good. And he said, yet, yet he chose me. Before the foundations of the world, he chose me. And then with tears coming down his cheeks, he looks at me and he's like, he says, that is amazing grace. That is amazing grace. See, the disciples had nothing within them that was worthy. I mean, when I think of like, how would we start a movement? If we put our heads together and sat down and said, how can we start 
a movement. We would think, all right, if we're going to choose 12 people, let's uh, choose the, the 12 most influential, powerful uh, people that we can think of, right? We would, we would get political figures on board. We would get religious figures on board. I mean, this is the way community activists work, right? Jesus comes, and he doesn't choose the, the 12 most influential, most qualified people. He chooses 12 regular dudes who are completely unqualified. Now, I, I want to actually go through. Mark gives us their names, um, and I want to go through and have you see them. But before we do that, I want, I want you to see what he called them to do. So in verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also made apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So three things that they're called to do from Mark here. Number one, they're to do what? Be with him. He's called these guys into fellowship with him. What else? Preach. To preach and to cast out demons, right? Jesus has called these guys, number one, to come into a fellowship, to come into a real and actual relationship with him. Uh, he's called them to have the same, the, the same message that Jesus is preaching, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news that Jesus brings. He's now giving this over to his disciples to preach, to take this gospel and to preach it. And he's also giving them power and authority in the spiritual realm. So let's break this down a little bit. Number one, he's called them into fellowship with, with him. Um, as I think about this, this place in Mark, what I find most amazing is that Jesus called anybody at all into fellowship with him. I mean, isn't that amazing? Let's just let that, let that sit with you for a little bit. He called, he called these people not, didn't, he didn't just direct them as their boss. He didn't just give them a list of things to do and say, hey, you're going to be part of my thing, my organization, and we're going to take over the world. But he, he literally just, the first thing he did was like, be my friends. I'm a friend of God, right? Are you, I, I'm calling you into fellowship. Just be with me. Just sit with me. Just come alongside and, and walk with me. Eat with me. He called these guys who, who, who were um, uh, nothing, no qualifi qualifications. He called them into relationship with him. Real people, real committed fellowship. He didn't just figuratively uh, save faceless individuals and call them into like a metaphorical community. But he called real faces, real individuals, and he called them into real committed relation, relational community with him and with one another. Uh, to, to where it actually gives us their names. He actually, he writes their names down. Let's read them. He appointed the 12. I want to read their names. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, by the way. Lest we be too quick to sort of venerate these guys and say these were like the, the elite that, 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 uh, um, uh, that Jesus found. And these, these, these were like regular, average uh, people. Uh, 
Peter, James, John, and Andrew were, what was their trade? Fishermen. All right, we don't know some of the trade. They might have all, uh, more of them may, may have been fishermen. We know for sure that these four guys were fishermen. Like just blue collar fishermen. Um, Peter actually denied Jesus later on when things got tough. Uh, Matthew was what? A tax collector. And last week we found out the tax collectors were what? Crooks. Sinners. Right. So Jesus called a sinner, someone who was unclean, to be part of his fellowship. Thomas uh, became a doubter. Judas, we know, ended up betraying Jesus. How, wait, this is a side note, but how interesting is it that Jesus, in his foreknowledge, uh, um, selected a guy to come into his midst who would betray him? Isn't that interesting? So let us not be shocked when we are betrayed by a friend. That's a little side note. Uh, a, a pastor friend of mine was betrayed big time. Betrayed big time. And he, it's crushed him. One of his closest allies. And he said to me, he was like, you know, Jesus was betrayed once. That's all he could take. <laughs> like, That's true. But Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest. All right. These guys, though, were just regular they, they, they were not like these 12 most powerful figures if we were to think through just world standards of how you start a movement or how you get things going. He didn't go and, and do things in that fashion. He didn't find the most influential people. This is the way we think, right? This is the way I think. Like, man, uh, if I could get this person to come be part of our church, like, man, just imagine what we could do then. If I could get this person to come over here, if we could get this person to do this in the community, like we could do some phenomenal, like we think in terms of, of influence and power and prestige and who has these things, who's influential. This kind of stuff doesn't matter to Jesus. It doesn't, power and prestige, influence, all of that, these, these terms that we come up with as humans, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He finds these guys who, on the, uh, according to world standard, would be known as losers. Everybody say losers. That's what they would have been. He did not call the righteous. He called a tax collector, a sinner, someone who was bringing condemnation on Jesus. He didn't call the religious leaders or leaders in general. He called blue-collar high school dropout fishermen. There was nothing in them, uh, in and of themselves, that was beautiful or noteworthy or attractive. Jesus, as the song says, makes beautiful things out of dust, right? He makes beautiful things out of absolutely nothing. And so he takes these guys, these uh, unworthy, not so beautiful, not so attractive, not so successful 12 dudes, and he calls them, first thing, into fellowship, into relationship with him. And then he says that they may preach the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, that they may preach that. That's what these disciples are to be doing. And that they may have authority in the spiritual realm. Um, I want you to understand fully what he's getting at here. Jesus is essentially, d discipleship is to do what? It's to follow Jesus, right? Discipleship of Jesus is to follow Jesus and to become more and more 
like Jesus. And so he's calling these guys to do what he does. And at the core of what Jesus is doing is preaching the good news of the kingdom. And so these guys then are being called to preach the gospel, to tell actual people, not figuratively speaking or metaphorically speaking, but to like literally tell actual faces, names, people about the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God, the reign of God is at hand. It's among us and we have access to it through Jesus. We were once dead in our sins. We, we had nothing. We, our, our, our sins were not just simply bad things that we've done. Like we, we typically think of sins as just bad things. Sins are not just bad things. Sins are, they, they are offenses um, against this eternally righteous God. And not only do we commit sins, but the Bible says that we are sinners, which means that we are eternally an offense to this righteous God. Yet this God, this righteous God, loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to live the life that we could never live, to die the death on our behalf, and to raise, giving us new life. That is good news, is it not? And so Jesus then, is, as disciples, he says, look, this is what you, what, what you, 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 you f- have fellowship with me, and you preach this. You take this good news, and you tell people about me, about what's going on here, about this, this event, about this thing that's happening, about the, this love that God has for us, about the kingdom of God, which is at hand. If Jesus made you a disciple then, what are you to do? If Jesus made you a disciple, and discipleship means that you follow Jesus and do what Jesus does, well then if Jesus turns the other cheek, you're to do what? Turn the other cheek. If Jesus extends care and love to the outcast, to the hurting, to the broken, you're to do what? Extend love. I know that's wordy. Extend love and care to the outcast, the hurting, and the broken. If, if Jesus has made you a disciple... Um, and a disciple follows Jesus, and at the core of what Jesus does is Jesus makes disciples, and you're not making disciples, then you might not be a disciple. If Jesus has called us to make disciples, and what a disciple does is they follow Jesus, and Jesus at the core of what he does is call men to repent and believe the gospel and make disciples. And we're to follow that. And we're not making disciples. We have to question. We might not be a disciple. I would agree with Charles Spurgeon who said this. He said, every Christian is here. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is just a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. But that man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. Are you a disciple of Jesus or are you merely a fan of his you're on his fan page you get his fan mail you go to his events you wear his t-shirts 
Are you a disciple or are you merely a fan? Fans will go to church. Fans will give money to church. Fans will do some awesome things in the community. They'll do some really cool ministries, some social things, and wow us. But see, fans are totally different than disciples. Fans will run. When Jesus doesn't come through for them. When things get hard. But a disciple, on the other hand, is someone who has been transformed. Completely transformed. Not from the outside in like a fan, but from the inside out. They are transformed individuals. In Matthew 28, we see Jesus look at his disciples, these, these, these guys that he's called to him. He looks at his disciples and then those others who are being called also now into discipleship and he addresses them. These are his last words on earth to, to some of these folks and he addresses them. And this is what he says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples of all peoples. That word nations is better translated peoples, which makes sense in a multicultural society, doesn't it? Of everybody, those that look like you, those that are like you, those that are not like you, those that are hard to get along with. Go into all the world. Go in, let's, let's, let's look at it in this context. Go into all of West Baltimore. Go into all of Baltimore City. Go into all of Maryland and preach the gospel. Making disciples of all peoples. Our number one job as disciples of Jesus Christ, what we are to be doing is making disciples of Jesus Christ. I think of... Um, I think of First uh, Corinthians, where Paul says um, that God uses the weak to shame the wise. See, Jesus comes in onto this scene in Mark here, and he's he's calling these guys to be his his uh, disciples. And then here in Matthew twenty-eight, we see him that unleash them into the world. And what came out of these guys, by the way? Jesus left, and the Holy Spirit came and did some transformational work in their hearts, regenerated them, and what came out of them? Us. We are part of this stream of people. Like, if we could tra trace this back, you know, who, um, uh, who told me about Christ? Who told them about Christ? Who told them about Christ? And we keep tracing this back, these, all these different streams. We're going to find that somebody came across a mountain and somebody crossed a desert and somebody crossed a sea. And we're going to trace it back all the way to Jerusalem where the, there are these 12 guys standing there. And Jesus says, go into all of the world and make disciples of all peoples. And as one preacher I heard, he said, he said and by the way, he said this to 12 bigot Jews. And they went from there into all of the world. And we see in Acts, we were in Acts last summer, we're going to be in Acts again this summer. We see in Acts then that this gospel didn't stay in Jerusalem, but they took it outward. And these very people went 
and into Galatia and into Ephesus and into Ethiopia. Just all over, all across the world, the gospel spread. And we had this global movement, which we now call the church. And we are part of that movement. We would not be here today if these guys did not take discipleship literally. Like if they were like most of us and they said, yeah, I'm like a disciple of Jesus, but I don't really do that kind of stuff. Like that's not really what I'm called to do. Like there, it's so easy to make this metaphorical. It's so easy to make this sort of like, um, you know, I, I don't really have to uh, extend myself or we, 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 we make ourselves feel better about it. You know, we, I, I'm, I'm doing this thing. You know, I'm, I'm working my job really well, and that's my discipleship. You know, I'm, um, but I'm not really making disciples. If, if the early disciples had that mentality, we would not be here today. But they actually believe that they're to do what Jesus did, and they're to make disciples. Now, let me say this at the same time. Here's the... Here's the beauty of this. I was speaking with um, a couple friend of ours, Jess and I were, um, like, I don't know, two years ago maybe. And they are, uh, I would say, probably agnostics. Um, and we, well, we were talking about uh, life and Jesus and different things. And, and uh, she said, she was like, hold up, hold up. Are you guys going to try to convert us? And... Um, my response was, no, I'm not. Um, if you are ever converted, that will be God that converted you. And you know what? They were cool with that. She was like, all right, I, I can do that. I like that. But that's the truth. See, it's not, as we go out and make disciples, it is not our job to convert. It is our job to simply proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Christ calls disciples and makes disciples, does something in us where, where we were dead, we are now alive. And he uses these 12 guys, these, the, this church, not the famous religious leaders, whatever, he uses the weak. He uses the weak. I think of Paul in the next letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul says, if I'm going to boast at all, if I have anything to boast about, I'm not going to boast about the good things that I've done or who I am. If I have anything to boast about, he says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to boast there. Because that's where the power of Christ is seen. See, Jesus uses losers. He uses the weak to shame the wise. He uses the weak. He's used the weak to begin this global thing we now call the church. And he can and will use you. I mean, even in our own, in our own context here, I, I remember um, like two years ago or so, uh, right about probably almost exactly two years ago, I just remember uh, thinking, my, looking at sort of the, the couple people we had and thinking to myself, um, we don't have what it takes to start a church. We don't have the money. I don't have what it takes to start a church. I don't have the, um, uh, I don't speak well enough. I don't, I don't know what, what, what it takes to start a church. I didn't, I, I, I didn't have it. And I'm looking around at my friends and the people that 
we have, there's maybe 10 of us. And I'm like, we don't have what it takes to start a church. And I remember walking down Utah, and I was like, God, like, why am, I, why am I here? Like, I've already been here for a year just trying to meet people and build relationships. And, and there's people that are moving. There's people that are uh, falling into sin. There's, and I'm like, what, what's going on? And I remember sitting down, and I literally told, said this to Jess. I remember the conversation. We were sitting in our living room, which is now Ben and Jen's living room, actually. And uh, we were sitting there, and I said, I was like, if a church actually comes out of this, it will be due to the power of God. Not, uh, not us, not me. Because we don't have what it takes. And guys, we are seeing a church come out of nothing. We have seen people come to Christ. We've seen people repent. We've seen baptisms. We've seen eyes open. We've seen people who were once walking in sin walk away and change and repent and and, and, and follow Christ. We've seen God connect us with laborers for the harvest. We are seeing God do something out of nothing. There's, we have nothing. And see, this is what Jesus likes. He, he uses our weakness. He uses where we struggle. He uses our pains. And that is where his power is seen. And so if we then take this literally and we're like, okay, so Jesus called us to be disciples. He made me a disciple of his. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to do what Jesus did. Then we would go to all peoples, right? We would walk up to the hustlers on the streets, which, which some of you do. Two, two ladies in this church, uh, about what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a little fight out here. And uh, um, somebody's going to go get a gun, I guess. Um, and... They're driving away. This is Lynn and Andre. I'm just, I'm just going to say it. And uh, they're driving away, and Lynn pulls the car over. And uh, she's like, I think we should, uh, we should do something. I think we should, let's call Joel. And Andre was like, what, what is that white boy going to do? Like, <laughs> I was about to say exactly that. <laughs> so they actually come back and get in the face of these guys. All right? See, this is what we would do if we took it seriously. We would be like um, what we see in Acts. Like, they, they, they go somewhere, something doesn't go right, they, the, the, our movement is squashed, whatever it seems, and we go somewhere, and then we meet somebody else, and all of a sudden, they're becoming a follower of Christ. And we're baptizing them, and we're moving on, and we're creating community. Like, this is what it would look like if we really, we would go to all peoples. We would have our neighbors over more, not just to hang out and drink, but to share Jesus with them, to, like, invite them into relationship. And if we took this, literally, we would then see a movement across West Baltimore. We would go into West Baltimore and preach the gospel. We would go into the rest of uh, Baltimore City, into the state of Maryland, into the United States, and, and, and into, uh, across the world. And make disciples of all peoples. So are you a fan of Christ? Or are you truly a disciple? Let's go ahead and close in some prayer here. <clears throat> God, I ask that you do make us into true disciples. That we're not um, comfortable with simply being fans. 
that we don't settle for, for living life like anybody else would live it, um, yet we just go to church on Sundays or give some of our money away or whatever that might be. But that we are part of this global gospel movement of people who are called, they, they, they were dead and you did something in them and they're called into discipleship and then called to make more disciples. And we want to be part of that, every one of us, not just me as the pastor, but every single person. That's what we're here for and that is our central job as a church. And so we ask that you do the work in us that, we, that, that needs to happen so that we can be a part of this movement. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We um, regularly, each week, we uh, take a time of communion as a, as a family. This is a unifying table for us. Uh, to come around it and remember that it is, uh, it is this very uh, gospel, this good news that is at the center of, of who we are and at the center of what we do. Um, we are part of this tradition where Jesus looked at his early disciples, his first disciples, and he passed around the elements. And he said, every time you take this bread, every time you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Remind yourself of, of my love for you, of the love of God for you. And this, this covenant of love was sealed on the cross, uh, thereby forgiving our sins and drawing us into an eternal relationship with God. And so let's pray together, and we will take a time of communion. God, um, let us come to the table this morning uh, out of purity if there is animosity between us and another brother or sister, I pray that we will commit to making that right before we come. And God, if there is someone here whose eyes have been opened to their sin and their need for a Savior, uh, I ask that they trust in Jesus before they come to the table. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.